Let's have a quick word of prayer and we shall get started then. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be here. Thank you just for the time of fellowship with the meal and just with the worship, Lord. And just uh, pray, Lord, you'd be with us middle of the week here. Just uh, pray this is an oasis tonight of just strength and encouragement. And we just lift this up in your name. Amen. So I was thinking, uh, I had a great time with the fellowship, with the meal, a lot of fun back there. Great time of worship. So if you had to pick a topic to talk about to follow up fellowship and worship, it would have to be what? Circumcision. So... That is what tonight's lesson is all about. If anybody wants to leave and go catch a different church service, I completely understand. It is an important subject, and uh, we have to talk about it because there is a great spiritual point here. So you will hear that word more tonight than you probably have ever heard in your life. But as that being said, Joshua 5, verse 1, it says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Now, this is a real quick point here that's important to talk about. Remember last week, last week was the crossing of the Jordan and they crossed the Jordan during the floodplain. We said you have to think about it from the perspective of the kings that are in the promised land. Israel is coming in. Israel is coming in. and Everybody knows why Israel is coming in. Israel is coming in to conquer the land. There's nothing hidden about this fact. They know that's what's happening. Well, the Jordan is at flood stage. It's at the floodplain. Well, no one's crossing the river during that time. Well, God crosses the river during the floodplain. He crosses it, makes it dry land. We had a teaching about that last week, about the idea of the dry land and faith and walking over and crossing. So from a military standpoint, this is mind-blowing. Here's this army that's coming in to invade. They cross the Jordan River during floodplain, which is, well, let's just be honest, it's impossible. And they're now sitting here thinking, what are we going to do? Verse 1, they know about this stuff. They know about the Jordan. They know what's going on. They know God's there. And their hearts are melting. Now, a couple quick points about this. If you're taking notes, just write down these verses. We're just going to make a quick reference to them. Uh, first one is Hebrews 10, uh, verse 31. Hebrews 10, verse 31. Very famous verse that we all know. It says in Hebrews 10, 31, it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. These nations are literally shaking in their boots. Why? Because if God can cross the Jordan during the floodplain, what hope really do they have? Nothing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Going one step further, though, if you're taking notes, write this verse down. Matthew 21:44. Matthew 21:44. This is the very famous verse where Jesus says, highly paraphrased here, you will either fall on the stone and be broken, or the stone will fall on you and break you. And what that verse is saying is the stone is a picture of Jesus. You either fall on Christ and are broken. Meaning, I am a broken man. I have nothing, Lord. I need salvation. I need you. I'm broken. I surrender my life to you. I fall on Christ. Or if you choose to reject Christ, Christ falls on you in judgment. Well, what's happening here in uh, Joshua 5, verse 1, they're shaking. Why? Because they realize it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And number two, instead of them falling on the stone of God and being broken and saying, Lord, we want a relationship with you, they realize the stone of God is going to fall on them and crush them. Now, as we get ready to go through the rest of Joshua, we're going to refer back to this point numerous times. It really bothers some people that when we get further on in this book, where God makes statements like slay every one of the Canaanites, of the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, what it is, and you read these verses of where they go in and they kill everybody. 
And somebody says, well, how could a God of love do that? Well, this verse right here tells us they know who the Lord is. And as they know who the Lord is, they're willfully rejecting the Lord. So God says, since you have rejected me, the stone has to fall on you. It has to crush you. Just like today. If someone says, I reject Jesus Christ, my heart breaks for him. But I realize they're choosing hell over heaven. I mean, there's just no other way around that. And I've made this statement before, and, I, and some people don't like it. And it's like, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not necessarily that God sends somebody to hell. People choose hell by rejecting Christ. And when someone says, I don't want Jesus, well, there's only two options. If there's only two options, heaven or hell, when someone says, well, I don't want Christ in heaven, well, then you, you are choosing hell. You're choosing for the stone to fall on you and crush you. So as we go through the rest of the book of Joshua and we see these nations that have rejected God, the stone's falling on them. And you may say, well, what chance did they have? Well, remember all the way back in Joshua 2, Rahab. Rahab was a woman that had faith. And God says, since she has faith, she shall be saved. Any one of these nations could have stopped and said, okay, instead of fighting Jehovah, we will believe in Jehovah. They just chose not to. And since they chose not to, judgment comes on top of them. And the Bible says there's no excuse Actually, Romans 1.20, there's no excuse. The Bible says they are without excuse. So, you know, when you sit here, and I, every now and then I run into people, it's like, well, what about the Aborigines living in Australia? You know, what about the Bushmen living in Africa or whatever? And I always say, Romans 1.20 says that they're without excuse because they can wake up every morning and see the same creation that you see and see the same creation I see, and they can either stop to believe that that was created or not created. They have a choice. And if they believe that that was created by something bigger than them, I believe with all my heart, and the book of Acts proves this again and again, if somebody has a heart to know about the Lord, God will send somebody to that person. I believe that with all my heart. And so I'm not worried about the aborigine in Australia or the bushman in Africa because they can wake up and see the same sun and see the same moon I see. And if they have a heart to know the Creator, God will send some into lives to tell them about the Creator. I believe that. So these people here in verse 1 of Joshua 5, they're shaking in their boots, their heart's melting. They have a choice to accept or reject. If they choose to accept, they can have salvation like Rahab. If they choose to reject, the stone will fall on them and they will be crushed. Matthew 21:44. So that's a stepping stone, no pun intended, to the rest of what we're going to talk about here in Joshua throughout the rest of the book. So we'll make reference back to this point numerous times here. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that point? Because we kind of change uh, gears here a little bit from verse 2 on. Yeah, Rose. Yeah, I think it was 450, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did. And, you know, we've already heard that in Joshua 2, Rahab knew about the crossing of the Red Sea, which happened 40 years earlier. We hear, see here in Joshua 5 1, they know about the crossing of the Jordan. So the word's getting out. You know, the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit's convicting the world. Old Testament, God, they, the truth was getting out about what God was doing. They had a choice to accept or reject. They really did. Anybody else have anything about this point before we move on then? Okay. So now with that being said, Joshua 5, verse 2. 
At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the son of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness of the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people, they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Now, this brings up, obviously, some very interesting stuff right here. Now, what was the point and the purpose of this whole thing and the whole scheme of things? Well, if you're taking notes, just write down some of these verses here. The first one is Romans 4, verse 11. Romans 4, 11. The purpose of circumcision was supposed to be a sign. It was a sign of this was a different group. This was a chosen nation. And that's the sign that God used to do this. It goes all the way back to Abraham. This was the sign that God ordained. In fact, Abraham, if I remember correctly, was circumcised when he was 99 years old. So this was the battle plan from the beginning. Now, why did God choose this sign? Because there's a lot of easier signs to choose, I would think, in the whole scheme of life and the whole purpose of things. He chose this one because it represents a lot of things. It represents the idea of the cutting away of the old. It represents the idea of getting rid of the flesh. It represents an idea of taking something that is the most, if you dare I say, the most intimate part of a person saying that that is being given over to the Lord. This was something that was supposed to be done in that thing. And it carries all that type of symbolism. The idea of the flesh being cut away, the idea of a new man here, the idea of the old going, the idea of the intimacy belonging to the Lord. It carries that picture of everything. And it was supposed to be that sign, sign to the world of what was going on. Now, the tough thing about this is, if you really wanted to commit yourself to the Lord as a man, this is quite a sacrifice. No joke. If you look here, look at verse, um, verse 8. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people, they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Why did they have to wait till they were healed? Because it hurts, I bet. You know? It's one of those things where these were grown men, and I don't know how sharp the flint knives were in verse 2. I don't think this is a real sterile thing. I remember we have four boys, and I remember with one of the boys, they were getting ready to circumcise, and I said, can I go watch? Because I love health stuff. And I remember the doctor said, ah, you know, we really don't like it because generally the guys go in there and they think they can handle it, and then they pass out. And the moms go in there and they just scream because of what we're doing to the the little boy. And I said, I promise you I'm not going to pass out and I'm not going to scream. And I didn't. There's no passing out or screaming. I went in and I watched the whole procedure and you stop and you think from that perspective, okay, looking at that in a very sterile hospital, 2005 or whenever it was, you stop, think now, jump back now 3,000 years ago and flint knives. It's a little bit different thing. And I have always thought, and I don't really mean this as a joke. This is where my mind goes. I always thought there's somebody who comes that's not Jewish, and he wants to serve God and Jehovah. And I said, great. There's one thing we have to do. And I'll do anything for my Lord. <laughs> okay, well, if you're going to do anything for your Lord, let me go get Joshua on the flint knife. I mean, this, this is the commitment here. This is something that has to happen. And at the point of this is a sign. 
And in fact, it even goes one step further. The Bible says, Paul writes in Romans, that we've all been circumcised in the heart. Because just like the actual physical circumcision was the idea of the, once again, the flesh being cut off, the idea of that being cut off and now being focused on the Lord, that sign. Well, it says in the book of Romans that we've all been circumcised in the heart. Meaning that that dead sin flesh of the heart, God says, I'm cutting that away and now having you be focused on me. And just as we sit here and we squirm a little bit talking about circumcision, you know what? It doesn't really feel good to have your heart cut either. And when God comes to you and says, I'm asking you to let go of this, that hurts and we don't want to do it. And just as back during the Old Testament, oh, you want to follow the Lord? Okay, young man, here's how you follow the Lord. That takes a commitment. Well, same thing happens today. You want to follow the Lord? Okay, hey, God loves you. You love God. Part of that walk in relationship with the Lord is circumcision of the heart. Some of that dead flesh has to be cut away and you have to be focused on the Lord in all ways and all things. Intimacy with the Lord in all things. Now, if you're still taking notes here, just write down this verse, 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. God makes it abundantly clear, circumcision is not salvation. It's not salvation. Just because a guy went through this process in the Old Testament doesn't mean now that they were in. Because we all know that's not by works that you're saved. And going one step further in Galatians 5, 6, it talks about how circumcision wasn't salvation, but Jesus is salvation. So it's a sign. It's not salvation, but it's supposed to be a sign that points us towards a relationship with Christ. And I've heard pastors teach on this before. There's a lot of similarities between circumcision and the idea of baptism. Baptism does not save us, but it's an outward sign of an inward change towards the Lord. Baptism is a work, but it's not a work of salvation. It's a work that we do because we have been saved. Circumcision is not a work of salvation. It was something they did because they have been saved. So once again, the point is, it's a sign of that old man being cut away, that old man being let go of and now being focused on the Lord. And that's something that still we struggle with today. Once again, we're supposed to be circumcised in the heart. How many of us here sitting tonight all have something in our life that we brought in from our before Christ days? We're still struggling with it. God says, I want to cut it out. Oh, no, Lord, don't cut that out. You know, don't cut that out. That's going to hurt too much to let that go. Well, circumcision is an example of sometimes you take the pain because it's worth it as that sign for the Lord. So that is the spiritual side of circumcision, what it means. Now, the question comes up of why did these men have to do this? Because what did the law say? Does anybody remember how old was the guy supposed to be when he got circumcised? You remember eight days. Now, these guys are a lot older than eight days. So why did these guys have to go through this? Well, the answer is found in verse five. For all the people came out of all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way that they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Why were they not circumcised? Very simply put, bad parenting. Any good Jewish parent should have said, eighth day, male, should have been circumcised. This is why God said, I have to let this generation wander for 40 years, because they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so what you see here in verse 5, if these parents would have done what they were supposed to be doing on the eighth day, once again, no joke, they would have saved the man a whole lot of pain and suffering later on in life. But the parents weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Turn, if you will, to Ezekiel 18. See, here's the thing. You see the two extremes with this, I believe, in, in present day life. That my, believe, my parents were believers. And so I'm okay. 
And I've heard many pastors say, and I can't give credit because I don't know the first one I heard it was, that God has no grandkids. You're either his child or not. So yet you came out of a God-fearing home. Your parents were on fire for the Lord. They raised you in a godly way. That's great. But have you personally accepted Christ as your Savior? Because it's not your parents' salvation and it's not your parents' walk with the Lord. It's your walk with the Lord. (coughs) Ezekiel 18, which also then goes to the flip side. I've seen people today also seem to blame their parents. Well, my, you know, my mom and dad never really were church going people and I never really grew up in a church and never really had that understanding of the Lord. Okay, fine. But you're here today. Today's the day of salvation. Do you want it? Quit blaming your parents for not being the godly examples that you needed them to be. And now make that decision. Do you want to accept or reject? See, it doesn't matter to an extent. Hear me out. It doesn't matter to an extent how you're raised because you have to make that choice to accept or reject Christ on your own. Now, obviously, if you're raised in a godly manner in a Christian home, it makes the path to Christ much easier without a shadow of a doubt. But the whole point is salvation is available to anybody if they choose to accept it. So let's quit making excuses and decide whether we really want to walk with the Lord or not. See, in Ezekiel 18, it just comes right out and says this. Look here in uh, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he is not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during an impurity, has not oppressed anyone, is restored to the dead, or he goes on and on, not robbed anyone, given his bread to hunger, coveted the naked clothing, exactly. It goes on and says here in verse 9, If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. But look at verse 10. If he begets a son who is a robber, See, so this is a godly man. This godly man has a spiritual bum. Verse 10, he is a man that's a robber, a shedder of blood. He does none of these things. Let's jump down to uh, verse 13. If he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He should not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So you know what? Your father is a great godly man. So what about you, though? Have you accepted Christ? That's what he's trying to say here. Well, do you know what? Then it goes on. Well, what happens if that man that was a bum has a son? Verse 14. However, if he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers, but does not do likewise. Once again, verses 15, 16, doesn't do those wrong things. Verse 17, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and not walked, excuse me, and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. See, that's a picture of just. And that's one of those phrases we don't give God enough credit for. We talk about grace, we talk about mercy, but there's also justice. Some of you came out of the most dysfunctional of all dysfunctional homes. But you still have the same opportunity to be saved as anybody else does. And that's, that's amazing. That's great. Some of you came out of absolutely wonderful homes. Once again, your path to Christ was a lot easier spiritually. But you still had to make that choice on your own. Some of you have kids right now at home. The best thing you can do as a parent is make that path to Jesus clear and evident by the way you live your lives. Some of you have kids right now, maybe aren't doing the best job. No time like the present to start to say, I really want to point my kids in the right direction. But you know what? No matter what it comes down to, how you were raised, what your mom or dad did or what your mom and dad didn't do, we also have the opportunity to accept or reject. The whole point, though, is we as parents or as whatever state you're in can do a good job of pointing people towards the Lord. What you see back here in Joshua 5, 
What would have happened if the families would have circumcised them? Well, it would save a lot of pain later on in life. The problem was that generation was not focused on the Lord. And since they were not focused on the Lord, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing at home. So since they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing at home, that did filter over to their kids and it filtered over to what was happening now 40 years later. So if you have any quick questions, comments about this here before we move on, the whole idea of why did this even have to happen? So this happens now. And the point of this is that it happens is that they can now have that idea of... um, Passover, it says right here. Look at this in verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of the Jericho. As far as we know, this was only the third time that they actually did Passover. They did Passover when they were in Egypt while they were slaves. They did Passover when they first got out of Egypt. But as far as we know, the Bible is silent. They never did Passover during that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Once again, that was a generation that did not have their heart focused on the Lord. So, (coughs) excuse me, at this time, only Joshua and Caleb would have experienced what Passover was. And what a neat thing it would have been for these guys to see the picture of this. And one of the requirements as a male for Passover was you had to be circumcised. And so Passover is representing this. So this is the cool part about this lesson is as they're getting ready to go into this promised land and go into this battle, it's almost like a new beginning, a fresh start. It's almost like God is saying, you know what? For 40 years, I was not happy with the generation before you. That's all gone. The old is gone. The new has come. So now you have the circumcision, which is a sign of a changed life, just like we have the circumcision of the heart today in Christ. And now you're going to celebrate Passover, which the New Testament tells us Passover is what? A picture of Jesus. He's the Passover lamb. And so they have this great new fresh start. And so as they get ready to go into the fight, into the battle, what a great way to start is that newness, is that freshness of the way it's supposed to be. But there's one more thing that's going to happen here. Verse 11, and they ate of the produce of the land on that day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Now, I find this fascinating because you've got to put yourself in the perspective of this generation of these guys. The oldest guy here is going to be pushing 40. Okay, so he never was a slave in Egypt. His whole life is just wandering. And if you've ever looked at a map of where they wandered, they just wandered the same area again and again and again. The only existence this guy knows is every day when he wakes up, there's manna out there on the lawn. That's the only existence he's ever known. And there's quail. They get water from a rock. This this is the only existence he's known. He He never knew anything about circumcision or anything like that. He didn't know what to pass over. So this all right here is going on. So now, imagine every day of your life, every day of your life, ever since you were young, what did you have to do every morning when you got up? Go outside, gather the manna every day. And so all of a sudden, one day they get up and there's no manna on the ground anymore. That would really be mind-blowing for them. Now for us, okay, big deal. Imagine something you've experienced Every day for 40 years. And not just something you experience. Ever since Dawn and I, we told you before we got chicken. So every morning we go out and what do we do? We gather the eggs. Okay, if we don't gather the eggs, it's not like we sit there and starve, okay? Well, if you didn't gather the manna, you would starve. So your existence was this, was gathering this manna. That was your life. That was your food. 
And so now all of a sudden, you don't have to do it anymore. And, and when you look at what God did with this, this is kind of mind-blowing. Here, this is the last points we're going to talk about. Jump back, if you will, to Deuteronomy real quick. Let's talk about this manna thing for a second here. Jump back to Deuteronomy. This manna carries such a deep thing, and we can't do it justice in five minutes here, so you can study this out a little bit more on your own, but this manna is a wonderful picture of God's faithfulness. It's a wonderful picture of Christ. So, here in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 8, What was the purpose and point of manna? Verse 3 of chapter 8. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you known the man shall not live by bread alone, but but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What was the purpose of manna? The purpose of manna was to train them up in faith, to remind them every day, Your existence relies solely on the Lord. If he does not provide you manna in the morning, you will starve and you will die. So every day when they got up, it was a walk of faith. Then when they opened their little tent door, whatever it is, they had to trust that that manna was out there. That was their existence. And so what you see here is these guys for 40 years lived on this manner of faith that God would provide. And go one step further. Stay in chapter 8 and go to verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. See, humbleness and testing. Why is it humbleness? Because it's a humbling thing to realize that you have no say in anything and everything relies on the Lord. We take a lot of pride in what we can do on our own, right? There's a pride in getting your first job, getting your first paycheck, getting your first car. There's a pride in being able to take care of yourself. But yet, if we came to you and said, you know what? Your whole existence of food is going to be based on, you just have to trust that every morning when you open your door, someone's going to put milk, eggs, cereal, whatever in front of your door. That's going to humble you a little bit because you realize your whole existence now is based on somebody else doing what they're supposed to be doing. And the Bible even goes one step further. This was a test. And if you remember correctly, when they first did the manna, they failed the test. Remember? Because they said, hey, we're not going to have the manna on the Sabbath, so you've got to pull twice as much in the day before the Sabbath. They failed that test. So God says the whole purpose of the manna was to test you, was to humble you, and to make you rely on the Lord. And he says, that's why I did it. And the same thing happens today. What does he say in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our what? Daily bread. See, the problem is when I do counseling with people and even in my own life, we don't want our daily bread. I want to know what the bread's going to be like in a month. Lord, what's the bread going to be like in a year? Lord, what's this medical test going to be like? What's going to happen in this situation? Tell me. And God says, I will give you the daily bread that every morning when you wake up, there'll be enough manna in your life to get you through that day. Don't worry about tomorrow. See, the problem is we want to gather manna for the next week. How many of us sitting here tonight are worked up about something that may happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, what have you? God says, I give you manna for the day. I give you your daily bread to get through. Go one step further. Jesus said what? I am the bread of life. He says, so what you're doing is every day you're just going to rely on me. And as you rely on me every day, I will get you through it. Don't you think there was some nice Jewish woman years ago collecting manna that just said, you know, we should probably grab some extra just in case. And what happened to that manna? It molded. 
See, God says, no, it's a daily faith walk with me. I will test you daily. I will humble you daily. It's a daily thing that you have to guess. That guess, I should say, you have to believe I'm going to meet your needs. Nothing has changed from then to the day. You have to daily walk with the Lord, trust that he's your daily bread, and he's going to get you through it. It says in the book of Lamentations, his mercies are new every morning. Every morning when you wake up, you've got to get a little bit of the manna. A little bit of Jesus Christ to get you through the day because he's your daily bread and it's a faith thing, it's a test thing, and it's a humbling thing. Because some of us, maybe subconsciously, well, you know what, I, I can handle this one on my own. I catch myself doing that sometimes. Somebody says, hey, I want to get together and talk about this. Okay, I, I've talked about that hundreds of times with people before. Subconsciously, I don't need to pray about that one a lot. Or, you know what, it's a teaching. Oh, I've taught on this numerous times before. Yeah, I know it. I'll take notes and stuff, but I, I just, I'm okay with it. What is that? That's pride. Lord, I've been down this path. I know this path. No, every day I need to trust and rely on Him. Every day it's a test. Every day it's a walk. Every day it says, are you going to trust me? I'm going to meet your needs. So if you're going through a difficult time tonight, you've got to realize God says, the way I work this system out is every morning you've got to get up and say, Lord, are you there for me? And I believe that you are. And He says, I'll get you through that day. And that's the purpose of the manna. It's a great picture of Jesus Christ. And it's a great picture of God getting us through in faith, humbling us, testing us, saying, are you really going to trust in me and all that we do and say? It's a great, great picture. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? rest of uh, chapter 5, verse 13, actually goes really good with chapter 6, so we'll pick that up next week when we start into that. Any final questions, comments here before we close up? All righty. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, Mark. Oh, yeah, sure.